Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the hardback Bibles from out front, you should find our passage on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We started just before I left for our vacation. We started this series in Philippians, covered the first two verses. And now we're picking back up uh, where we left off. It's our practice here at Grace Covenant to stand when we read God's Word. So if you're able, let me ask that you do that now as we read uh, these verses together. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in Your Word even now. That through it, we might have our love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, a few days before we left on our trip, um, I started a new book. And then I didn't take it with me. So I, you know, I read like two or three pages and then took a different book with me on my trip and then haven't picked up this other one yet. But I, I started reading uh, The Letters of John and Abigail Adams. Hundreds of letters between... Uh, well, this former president, Continental Congress, Declaration of Independence, I mean, all of that, and his wife. Their, their need for each other, their love for each other, their trust of each other, seeking advice and counsel from each other. I mean, you sort of go, you know, this guy went on, as influential as he was in the Declaration of Independence, and then as a president, and yet leaning heavily on his wife for help and support and, and advice and thoughts and ideas. Um, there's something a little bit, though, odd about reading private letters between a husband and a wife. So much so that you'll actually never find the book, The Letters of George and Martha Washington. That book doesn't exist because when George died, Martha took their letters and threw them in the fire. 
She said these are private letters between a husband and a wife. These are not for public consumption. She burned them. There's something, though, a little... You feel a little bit odd, I guess, reading a letter from Abigail to her husband or from John to his wife. You feel a little like you're invading privacy. You're reading these private, personal letters between a husband and a wife. And you wonder, should I be here? Is this really something I should be reading? It's a little like perhaps reading someone else's mail. That's sort of what we're doing in this passage. That's kind of what we do when we read Philippians. We're reading a letter, a personal letter from Paul to the saints in Philippi, to this church that he planted 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago or so, you know, ago, before the letter, not ago now. But he's, he's writing this letter to this church that he had, he had helped start, writing to these saints, and it's a, it's, a, it's a personal letter in that sense. But it's also a letter to us. It's not just a letter to the saints at Philippi. This really is a letter to the saints in Athens. Not Greece, but Alabama. Because this letter isn't just Paul writing to a church. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word for His people. And so we're not really reading a private personal letter from Paul to this church. We're reading a private personal letter from Christ to you. It's, it's a letter from Christ to His church. Christ is writing this letter to a church that he had died to win. He had died to save. Yes, yeah, Paul was the, the, the instrument by, that God used to start to gather the core group in Philippi that would be the, the, the first Presbyterian church of Philippi. But it's a letter written from Christ to the church that he died to win, the church that he establishes, and the church that he defends. And in this letter, Paul tells us of his prayer for the church in Philippi. His prayer, and in that sense, his prayer for us. It's his prayer for the church. Notice, first of all, the reason for Paul's prayers Paul prays, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all. He prays for the church at Philippi. He's writing to saints, we're told in verse 1. Remember, that's not, those are not the super religious, super good people that managed to get out of purgatory early and into heaven because. You or they paid enough indulgences or did enough good works to get them into... Paul uses that word for every believer. He's writing to church members, the believers, to Christians in Philippi who are 
members of this local church body. But why does he pray? He gives us two reasons for his prayers. The first is he prays because he's thankful. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in, my, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He prays for them because he's thankful for them. He's, he planted this church. And you can imagine perhaps those three converts first mentioned in Acts 16 are still in this church. Those first three members of the core group that would be First Pres Philippi, perhaps they're still there as this letter comes from Paul and is read uh, to the church body. Lydia, a Gentile wealthy businesswoman. A servant girl, a girl who had been a slave and in bondage to a demon. And the Philippian jailer. There's the, the first, the beginning of the core group that would be first pres in Philippi. And since those days, since the, the beginning, these folks have been partners with Paul and Timothy in the gospel ministry. As long as they remained in Philippi, they were an encouragement to Paul and to Timothy. And, and as they left, as they went other places, they were an encouragement to Paul and Timothy. They've been partners with them in the gospel ministry. Paul mentions his imprisonment here. He's in jail. Um, most likely in Rome. Some other places he could be, but Rome's the most likely scenario. At the end of Acts, he calls it house arrest. In this letter, he mentions chains. So he's, he's under house arrest. Maybe it's not the same kind of prison that you and I might picture in our minds, but he's chained to a jailer. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's chained to someone whose job it is to make sure he doesn't get away. He's under trial. He had appealed to Caesar because as a Roman citizen, that was his right. He appealed to Caesar. He's in prison in Rome awaiting that trial, awaiting that hearing with Caesar. It takes time to, to build a case. It takes money to build a case. Lawyers are not cheap. And so he's... He's in prison and yet in need of assistance, help. That help comes in the form of, it appears, a man named Epaphroditus bringing money that the church in Philippi has collected to help meet Paul's needs. Surely he brought food. Does the church ever do anything when food's not really... Involved, we're going to send food. If we're going to send him money, we might as well send him a casserole too. And they came, he came on behalf of the church in Philippi to, to minister to Paul's needs there in Rome as he's awaiting trial. Paul 
prays for them because he's thankful for them. They've been partners with him, fellow believers, partakers of the same grace, partners with him, both in prison currently, now, and since they first began to meet 12, 15 years prior to this. Paul writes, Paul prays for them because he's thankful for them. But notice too, Paul also prays for them because he's hopeful for them. Most of you, I guess, I assume most of you are aware, uh, Lucas is an artist. Um, He draws constantly. Um, In fact, everywhere we went on this, we spent three weeks in Britain. Um, Everywhere we went, he had his backpack. And in that backpack was at least his pens and his sketch pad. And he would plant himself in some really cool perch and sketch what he saw up, up, up on a hill overlooking uh, the sea uh, in the middle of the gravel path in Melrose Abbey as people are walking by. He's like, I kind of want to sit there. Do it. Up on a perch in Jedburgh Abbey getting a view from a different angle. And, and you'd watch and he'd sketch. He'd, he'd draw pen and a piece of paper and he I don't know I don't know how he does it. I, I can't explain it I don't have that I can't draw stick figures but he he'd sit there and 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 in 30 minutes he'd have this really impressive sketch drawn but even then he wasn't done because he showed us his sketchbook after we got home and he had come back and added color And added layers, added depth, added some things to his sketches to sort of finish them off. Paul says in this passage, you and I are sketches. You and I are are unfinished artwork. You and I are, are, are projects that have not yet been completed. You see in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You and I are our projects. Oh, I'm I'm notorious. I'm 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 shamefully notorious for starting projects. I'm equally shamefully notorious for not finishing them. Um I had a mechanical engineer helping me with a treehouse that took years, probably, plural, years. You drive, we, we drive back to South, we don't ever do this. She's getting ready. We, we hardly ever make it back to South. When you do, does I-20 ever finish? Is I-20 in East Alabama ever anything but a construction zone? I mean, it seems like there's been construction there for 15 years. God's begun a work in us. And Paul prays for us. He prays for the saints in Philippi, not just because he's thankful for them, but because he's hopeful for them. He's hopeful because he knows God finishes whatever he starts. 
Whatever project God begins, He completes. Okay, maybe He doesn't complete it in our timetable. Maybe He doesn't bring it to completion the way you and I think it should be. But every project God begins, God finishes. We're unfinished projects. We're, we're work that has begun, but that has not yet been brought to completion because the day of Jesus Christ hasn't yet come. That describes us. We're sketches. We're not completed artwork. We're just, just the pencil on the paper, a, a quick sketch design. Yes, you can see what's going on, but it's not the finished work. In fact, you're going to sing this in just a few minutes. You, this actually, this is going to come out of your lips when we sing our closing song. The work His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. We're projects that remain as yet unfinished. But we're hopeful because the projects God begins, He completes. Now let me make a couple of observations about this. First of all, how do you know that the project has begun? How do you know that these folks are sketches? How do you know that you are a sketch, a, a project that has begun? How do you know the work has begun at all? Well, He sees evidence of it. He sees evidence in their lives. They're different. They're changed people. The gospel has, has come into their lives and made them something they weren't before. This wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, converted, brought to faith in Christ. Her whole household receives baptism. She's now in a position to use that wealth for the good of the kingdom. A slave girl, just a, a tool, an instrument in the hands of her owners, her masters, she was used as a fortune teller. She, she could, she's a palm reader. She, she could tell your fortune. And so people would pay her owners, her masters, to have her tell their fortune. They were making a killing off of her demon-possessed gift. She's freed from that demon. Freed from those masters they no longer had any need for her, no use for her. Free in Christ. He sees evidence that the gospel is at work in their lives. These people have partnered with him from the beginning and have given generously while he's in prison so that he can build this case that he's going to have to present to Caesar. They've given evidence that the work has begun in their lives. A second observation about verse 6 is this. What does it say about the way the work began? You know, there are those and... Uh, they're everywhere in our community uh, who contend that we take the first step and after we take that first step, God takes over in our salvation. That's not what Paul says here. 
Paul says God began the work in you. You took that first step at all because He drew you to take that first step. God began the work. And the work that God begins, He will complete. God initiates our salvation. It's right there in verse 6. Yes, you're a sketch. Yes, you're a work in progress. But you're God's work in progress. Imagine how differently our songs would be if we really did take the first step. Imagine how differently our singing in worship would be if, if we were looking for some amount of credit because my salvation depended on me deciding that I'm going to choose God and isn't He lucky to have me on His team? Amazing grace would now be kind of like kind of cool grace. I mean, crown Him with most crowns, but I get one of them. I mean, you have to change everything you sing. If we take any credit and glory for our salvation. There's a third implication from this verse. Yes, we're a work in progress. God always completes His work. God didn't abandon the Israelites somewhere in the wilderness and say, well, I got you out of Egypt, now you're on your own. He got them out of Egypt and said, now I'm going to take you to the promised land. He delivers us from bondage to sin and He delivers us to the promised land. Eternity with Christ. Paul prays for the the saints in Philippi, for the, the church in Philippi, because he knows that God completes what He starts. We see the reason... The reasons for Paul's prayers. He he prays because he's thankful. He prays because he's hopeful. We also see the content of those prayers. In verses 9 through 11. Knowing that God is at work drives Paul to pray that God would be at work. Does that strike you as odd at all? Knowing that God is at work drives Paul to pray that God would be at work. Now, I have to, I have to make this observation because of the context that we, Grace Covenant Church, the context that we have in Athens. Um, you may find, we are as a Reformed Presbyterian church, you may find folks who will say to you, oh, well, if you believe in predestination, then you must not believe in evangelism. If you believe that God is sovereign and that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, then clearly you don't believe in praying. Okay. Scripture commands evangelism and praying, therefore we evangelize and we pray. But we also believe that God not only has ordained the ends, He's ordained the means. Yes, he's, I believe in predestination, but I also believe that God has said the way those people come to faith in Christ is when you and I take the gospel to them. That's the means of evangelism. I also believe that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But notice, Paul does too. I know that God completes what he starts. 
Therefore, I pray that God would complete what he starts. That's the content of Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul prays precisely that God would be at work precisely because he knows God is at work. Our confidence in God's sovereignty should drive us to pray, not drive us away from praying. Paul prays specifically that their, their, their love would abound more and more. Love for Christ? Their love for each other? Clearly those two things go together. We can't truly love each other unless we love Christ. And loving Christ will mean loving each other more, but the context clearly says it's their love for Christ that he's praying for, that as they love Christ and as their love grows, as it abounds more and more, it will find itself grounded in truth. Paul prays not for a mushy, gushy, ooey-gooey, feeling kind of love. He prays for love grounded in the truth of Scripture. That that love would translate to knowledge and discernment. Distinguishing between that which is excellent and that which isn't. Discerning between that which is godly biblical teaching and that which is not. That which is straight from the mouth of God Himself and that which is straight from the pit of hell. That, that we would, as our love grows, that we would be able to distinguish, discern, between truth and error. Between that which is biblical and that which is not. That which is godly and that which is not. That which is God's word and that which is Satan's word. Paul prays that our love would abound more and more. But a knowledgeable love, a discerning love, that we may be able to approve that which is excellent. You know, prayer is difficult. Prayer is a, prayer is a battle. Satan doesn't want us to pray. The world doesn't want us to pray. The world mocks us for praying. What? You believe in God? I'm not even sure God exists. And you're, pray, you're praying to what? I mean, really? The world doesn't want us to pray. Our flesh doesn't want us to pray. You notice, as soon as you start praying, all the crazy thoughts you have, all the distractions that come into your life, all the, the lists of things you're supposed to be doing that day or should have done that day, they all come flooding into your mind. Why? Because our three mortal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they don't want us to pray. Prayer is difficult. Add to that the times when you and I go, I don't really know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray for so-and-so in this situation. I don't know how to pray for my church. I don't know how to pray for my neighbors. I don't know how to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, don't, I kind of don't know what to say. Well, pray this. Pray these verses. Grab Philippians 1, open your Bible, and pray that for Grace Covenant Church. Pray that for me. Pray that for us. 
pray that our love would abound more and more. Use Paul's prayers as models for your own, especially when you're wrestling with, I can't focus, my flesh doesn't want me to pray, I don't know what to say, I'm, I'm weak and feeble and finite, and I, I don't know what to say. Well, grab one of Paul's letters. He prays in almost all of them. Use those as your model. Use those as you pray for your church, as you pray for the saints in Athens. And notice this. Paul says explicitly that salvation is all of grace. That God began the good work and that God will bring it to completion. God is the active one in that verse. But he also models for us that salvation is all of grace. Remember, we've said this before. Every time you pray, you admit that you can't and that you don't know how. Every single time we pray, praying inherently admits, I'm lacking knowledge, understanding, power, whatever it is. Prayer always admits, I can't. It also admits, but you can. Paul tells us that salvation is all of grace. And then he models that for us by praying that our salvation would be all of grace. He prays for more grace. That we might grow in our love and knowledge and discernment. Every time we pray, we admit that God is sovereign and that we are not. Even over our salvation. For Paul, confidence in God's completing his projects drives him to pray. Are you certain enough that God is at work in you, in your children, in your parents, in your siblings, in your church, in your community? Are you certain enough that God is at work that you would pray more fervently, more consistently, more confidently for the saints at Grace Covenant. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that our salvation is all of grace. But for your grace, we would not have any interest in You whatsoever. We would have no interest in the Gospel. We'd have no interest in Christ. Apart from Your grace, we'd have no understanding or knowledge of Christ. We'd have no care for Your Word or Your world or the lost. And so, Father, we come and beg that You would pour out Your grace on us this little church plant in Athens, Alabama. That our love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. 
that we might bring honor and glory to Christ. That you would, that you would grant to us evidence that you are finishing the projects you have started for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.